Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This hand was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 469, recorded on Sunday, May 7th, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week, we're talking about Hollywood strikes, including the current 2023 Writers Guild of America strike. There have been at least 17 significant labor strikes against Hollywood by the craft or industrial unions representing film and TV industry workers. The first was in 1936, as far as I could tell, and there were at least three in the 1940s, one in the 1950s, two in the 1960s, one in the 1970s, six in the 1980s, none in the 90s, two in the first decade of the 2000s, and now the current one at time of recording. Some were very broad strikes, while others have been quite restricted to specific occupations, such as animators, musicians, set decorators, even directors, and obviously also actors and writers. In fact, more than half a dozen strikes have been by the writers, including, of course, the one we're talking about today. You might also recall hearing about narrowly averted strikes, like the 2021 dispute that nearly led to a strike by the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, Moving Picture Technicians, Artists, and Allied Crafts, or IATSE. And today we're going to talk about the current strike and the demands of the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and also highlight some of the biggest strikes in Hollywood history, including a strike where Ronald Reagan worked on the side of organized labor. So, Rachel, before we get into some of these historic strikes, can you give us a brief overview of what is uh, at stake or the points of contention in the current Writers Guild of America strike in 2023? So, first, I want to point out that um, actor, writer, comedian Adam Conover recently tweeted an excellent thread uh, breaking down the demands of the WGA. I believe he's in leadership uh, with the WGA West. Um, uh, he he had a really great thread um, and uh, the, he made sure that people are aware of the of the demands of the WGA and really laid out what's at stake and the response from the producer sides. So in the era of subscription view on demand or SVOD uh, television and movies, uh, WGA members are striking to ensure that writers' rooms are paid as well as their traditional media counterparts. And um, they made a list of their demands, and among those demands is um, an established minimum number of television writers as opposed to the quote-unquote mini-room, um, which is where a showrunner hires a small handful of writers to work on scripts before a show is greenlit. Um, a mini-room may also be spun up between seasons before a new season is confirmed. So in this uh, era of the Netflix model, in which a next season is always up in the air, this is a way to cut costs on writers' rooms if a project doesn't come into fruition. Um, if or when the project or next season is greenlit, oftentimes those mini-room writers do not continue on the project. And I found a Variety um, article about um, what exactly a mini-room is. And quoting now from that article, 
Uh, the issues with both scenarios, meaning the pre-greenlit and post-greenlit um, mini rooms, is uh, significantly more pronounced for newer writers. Not only are newer writers less likely to get staffed in a mini room, but even if they do, they will only make scale. In the WGA's view, this has led to an overall depression of writer pay rates as mini rooms become more common. In addition, writers will struggle to advance to showrunner if they don't get the chance to be involved in the production and post-production process. So we've talked about this um, in terms of other industries, other labor disputes. The, the overall depression of pay rates, once you bring people in that are greener, don't have the experience, just overall depressing wages across the board. So it's not, it's not any different in show business. Um, the labor conditions are just as bad and um, the, there's just as much at stake when these show business unions go on strike or try to negotiate for better working conditions. Um, so the WGA is demanding a minimum of six writers in a writer's room pre-green light uh, with four writer producers who are better paid um, commensurate with that position and a sliding scale of writers based on episode count up to 12 writers in a room with about half working as writer producers post green light. Um, they're also demanding minimum terms of employment, uh, at least 10 weeks consecutive employment for pre green light projects and three weeks per episode post green light up to 52 weeks. So the uh, Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers um, rejected those offers and basically refused to counter offers. So they're just kind of stonewalling. They're calling uh, the WGA's bluff and not really offering any alternatives. Um, on the feature side of things, uh, WGA members are asking for SVOD films to be treated similarly to theatrical features once the budget of a project exceeds $12 million, including residuals at the features rate. Um, so right now streaming gets um, a percentage of what um, more um, traditional media residuals offer. So the Alliance of Producers only wants to offer theatrical terms to high budget SVOD programs that have a runtime greater than or equal to 96 minutes and have a budget of $40 million or above with no increase in residuals. Um, in addition, WJ wants to extend pension and health benefits to all writers on a writing team, which the Alliance of Producers rejected. And most importantly of all, um, the WGA seeks to greatly re regulate the use of AI to write or punch up scripts and to limit what material can be used to train AI programs. And the AMPTP counteroffer is, quote unquote, offering annual meetings to discuss advancement, advancements in technology, end quote. So they're not really promising to um, limit the use or regulate the use of AI in script writing projects. Um, so it, they're really trying to um, automate writers' rooms, uh, reduce the number of human workers. Um, and so it's, it's pretty dire out there. Um, so, so far, it seems like public response seems to be pretty positive towards the writers, but I think if delays to productions become more significant, um, the tide of public opinion may turn against them. So I, I think right now it's just um, kind of a PR blitz to, to really show what's at stake for the Writers Guild, why it's important, um, how it would affect uh, uh, people's favorite television shows and movies and just really make sure people are aware 
of the labor conditions and what the WGA uh, is seeking um, to negotiate. So we'll see how long it lasts. I, um, in the past, writer's strikes tend to be about two to three months. So we're right in the beginning weeks of it. So we'll see, we'll see how it shakes out. So I wanted to talk as we get into the history, I, I guess I would say let's talk first about the most recent one before this. But of course, that's also 15 years ago at this point, hard as that may be for some of our listeners to believe. Um, but that's the one that a lot of people are going to be more familiar with than some of the older ones we're going to talk about. So I want to talk a little bit about the 2007-2008 Writers Guild of America strike. This is the one that um, was quite noticeable for a lot of people in just the general public because a lot of their favorite television shows uh, either went on hiatus or ended very suddenly, ended up with truncated seasons, things like that. Narratively, a lot of shows uh, changed very significantly if they were scripted shows uh, in that year or uh, disappeared altogether off the air, especially if they had been kind of on the bubble at that point earlier. But that's not really the story of that strike. That's just obviously the part that most of the people in the general public might uh, remember or have noticed at the time. Now, although the 2007-2008 WGA strike, which lasted about three months, uh, a little bit over three months, has been blamed for the explosion of the unscripted reality TV genre, this has some truth to it, even though it's a complicated story, one huge win for the writers was gaining jurisdiction over the other big emerging type of television big-budget original web streaming shows. This was just about to become an enormous part of the Hollywood portfolio, and if the WGA had failed to assert union hiring requirements there, it probably would have destroyed the union. Both sides understood that streaming was the real battleground of that strike. At the time, however, much of the coverage of the strike was about residuals for DVD sales, which were actually about to decline anyway, and in fact, the union did not win any changes on DVD residuals in that strike. It's unsurprising that streaming residuals instead is an ongoing controversy 15 years later, including as an angle of the 2023 strike, but if the 2008 strike outcome had gone a different way, there might not have even been union writers at all on the zillions of shows soon to be produced on streaming platforms after 2008. But the views of the various unions in Hollywood, not only for writers and actors, but also many other types of union employees in the industry, is that residuals help smooth out income for the workers between projects where they're getting paid on contract. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later when we get to the strike that sort of established that uh, as a principle. Uh, let's go back to not quite the beginning, but probably the one of the most famous early strikes in 1941. Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about that one? Yeah, so the Disney animator strike of 1941 was a huge strike. Um, it lasted for three months and 26 days. Uh, the Screen Cartoonist Guild was seeking to win recognition and a contract for animation workers at Disney, which was a very anti-union workplace with a noticeably unfair, uneven, and chaotic compensation system. Uh, so in the run-up to uh, seeking recognition, um, Walt Disney gave a rambling in-person tirade to some 1,200 employees and actually fired a number of the union organizers, and among them was top animator Art Babbitt, and the firing of these uh, animators prompted a wildcat strike ahead of schedule, and it just kind of spiraled from there. Um, it 
the strikers did receive a great deal of support, including material non-cooperation with Disney from other unions, both in the industry and in external industries. Uh, the strike became extremely contentious, with the strikers actually beheading Walt in effigy, and uh, Disney, Walt Disney on his part, um, was started circulating photos of the picketers among the still-working animators, um, implying that he was keeping close tabs on who was picketing and who was working, and would keep that in mind for the future. Um, Walt Disney was eventually forced to accept defeat under significant pressure from the U.S. State Department and the National Labor Relations Board because Disney was fulfilling a U.S. soft power contract for the federal government to propagandize in Latin America as World War II escalated towards an inevitable U.S. entry. Uh, Latin American trade unionists and communists coordinated via the heavily internationalized and left-wing National Maritime Union of the Congress of Industrial Unions on behalf of the animators were going to organize sympathy protests across the region against Disney screenings if the strike was not resolved. Um, so as a result of the strike, the animators received pay equity, uh, transparency in pay and employee classifications, a 40-hour work week, pension and health benefits, and the establishment of a grievance procedure, as well as screen credits for all animators. Um, in the past, animators felt that Walt Disney was taking credit for all their work. Um, they weren't getting named uh, credits, so that was a big point of contention. And also included as a result of the strike was the reinstatement of all fired animators. However, despite the victory of the strikers, ill will was so high that nearly half the studio's employees refused to return to work for the company, and eventually Walt Disney would retaliate against many of them by testifying to the House Un-American Activities Committee that they were communists and he actually got them on the Hollywood blacklist. Um, another outcome of the strike was the formation of the Conference of Studio Unions, which sought to unite workers of various crafts and actually became a party to the next major Hollywood strike, um, which Bill will talk about um, on the next uh, strike action. The 1945 set decorators strike by the Conference of Studio Unions ended in disaster, termed Hollywood Black Friday or Hollywood Bloody Friday, when a prolonged riot broke out on October 5th in front of the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank as strikebreakers attempted to cross the picket lines. Warner's private security and private firefighters began tear gassing and hosing down the rioting strikers, while the Burbank police kept requesting more and more support from the Glendale and LAPDs. Additionally, much of the strike conflict had occurred between the Conference of Studio Unions and the rival IATSE, which was in a jurisdictional turf war. Although many IATSE members supported the 10,000-plus striking CSU members, the official policy from union leadership was not to cooperate with the CSU strikers. Nominally, the CSU won the strike on paper, but this ended up being more of a stall tactic by the studios to work out a side agreement with IATSE to lock out and replace every single CSU member the following year, backed tacitly by a vote of the Screen Actors Guild, with further violent clashes ensuing. The CSU essentially collapsed, and the set decorator workers, who were mostly trade workers with very transferable skills like carpentry, left Hollywood to take normal trade jobs in other industries. The 1945 riot and later clashes are blamed as one factor that helped get the Taft-Hartley Act passed in 1947 after the Republicans took Congress in the midterms. And of course, union leaders of the failed labor actions were soon put on the Hollywood blacklist as alleged communists. So in 1960, there was a very significant Screen Actors Guild strike. Um, so we've mentioned residual several times in this episode, 
And astonishingly enough, uh, Ronald Reagan was instrumental in establishing residuals for actors on both big and small screens. Uh, so with the rise of television and televised movies, film actors started to organize to demand residual payments for their roles. Um, so during Ronald Reagan's first tenure as SAG president from 1947 to 1952, he helped to secure residuals for television actors when their episodes were rerun. Uh, so film actors put their faith in Reagan and elected him president of, of SAG once again in 1959. Um, so, Film actors had been uh, trying to negotiate these residual payments, uh, but the producers at the studios uh, dug their heels in because they saw that if they acquiesced to the actors' demands, um, they'd eventually have to extend residuals to screenwriters and directors. Uh, spoiler alert, that's exactly what happened. So the producers were uh, obviously correct in their self-interest to dig their heels in and refuse to negotiate. But um, on March 7th, 1960, uh, SAG members voted to authorize a strike, and almost 14,000 actors walked off the job, uh, kicking off the first industry-wide strike in Hollywood's history. Um, and although actors wanted to receive residuals for future roles and retroactive payments for films shown on TV from 1948 through 1959, um, they didn't quite get that. Um, so after six weeks of negotiations, they received three of um, major concessions. So one, actor residuals for all studio films made starting in 1960. Uh, two, uh, they didn't get any residuals for any free studio films produced before 1948. But the third thing is pretty important. In lieu of residuals for films made between 1948 and 1959, the producers agreed to a one-time payout of $2.25 million, which was a contribution that SAG would use as seed money for a new union health insurance plan and a pension plan, which is pretty important. Um, I, I don't know if you've heard, noticed this, but health and pension is one of the main demands and one of the main benefits um, that a lot of these labor actions um, are seeking. Um, so pretty important health insurance pension plan um, got started in 1960 for SAG members. Uh, some actors did criticize the lack of retroactive residuals, um, among them Bob Hope and Mickey Rooney, um, who were actors that acted a lot in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, and didn't really get that um, that benefit. Um, but Reagan was pleased with the outcome, saying, quote, I think the benefits down through the years to performers will be greater than all the previous contracts we have negotiated put together, end quote. Um, his production has turned out to be correct. Uh, since SAG first issued residual checks up to 2011, which is when uh, an Atlantic article about the Reagan strike, the SAG strike, was published, more than $7.4 billion has been dispersed to actors, and the health and pension plan ceded by the one-time payout from the producers has been of incredible benefit to actors. So overall, uh, Ronald Reagan did do one good thing in his life. Or I guess two good things if you count television and film residuals as two separate things. So um, kind of surprising. Uh, a good story about Ronald Reagan. So obviously we're not going to talk about all of the Hollywood strikes, but just a few of the ones that were particularly notable or interesting to us. So let's fast forward now to 1988. Uh, Ronald Reagan is finishing his second term as a conservative union-busting Republican president. There's a presidential election happening. And the WGA goes on strike uh, once again. 
this was an interesting one to me because it was mostly reactive rather than them demanding certain things. Uh, this particular one was that they were reacting to cuts being demanded by management in the contract talks, uh, which had resulted in no deal being reached. Therefore, they went on strike. Um, and the cuts that were being proposed weren't particularly interesting to talk about, so I won't get into the specifics. But uh, due to the months-long strike uh, over the spring and summer of 1988, and while waiting for new shows to be ready to air after the strike ended in August, uh, obviously there were tons of reruns and things like that, and trying to like reshoot uh, old older scripts using new actors or you know rearranging some things uh, and trying to do that. Right there. They also, uh, apparently, uh, the big three networks at least, began airing a lot more longer form political advertising to fill the airtime. Now, I was unable to find any additional information on this online or examples of long form ads, which I assume were probably independent expenditures. I'm guessing these were either issue ads or general you vote Democrat, vote Republican at the various levels of uh, office on the ballot, or they were about the presidential elections. Now, the most devastating and infamous anti-Dukakis ads that you might be thinking about ran in September and October 1988 after the strike, but they were standard length spots. So again, uh, the problem is when you try to search for this online, and I don't know if this is just a Google problem or maybe it hasn't been written about, when you try to search for this online, you only get stuff really about the famous or infamous ads uh, that were the standard length that aired in the late fall uh, and really damaged uh, Dukakis. Uh, I was not able to find anything about what these infomercials were about, so I don't know if these were also contributing factors or not to the sort of general collapse over the course of the summer and into the fall uh, of Dukakis's polling. Because originally Dukakis, although he ended up losing by quite a lot, uh, was was polling ahead of George H.W. Bush, uh, at least as far as I recall from uh, previous uh, research and things that I've done on this uh, in the past. Now, fittingly for a year with such horrendous and salacious tough-on-crime political rhetoric, the 1988 WGA strike notably also resulted in the creation of the fly-on-the-wall reality TV show Cops, which has now run for 35 seasons. Rupert Murdoch's Fox Broadcasting Network, which picked up the show in 1988, had recently been launched as the fourth network, and they didn't have any union writers anyway, uh, and were even more in need of something to put on the air uh, to fill their time slots. So they picked up cops, and we, of course, know the legacy of that. Now, another interesting strike that I wanted to talk about was the uh, commercial actors strike in 2000. This is relating to actors who are uh, playing parts in uh, television commercials. And this was nominally a strike that was won by the actors uh, at the time, SAG and AFTRA. They've now merged into one union. Uh, and they... Uh, Basically, what happened was that the the advertising agencies uh, were receiving a lot of pressure by their major clients, for example, Procter and Gamble, to get the strike resolved. Um, they wanted to be able to go back to making ads and not have it be a huge political nightmare, as well as the other problems associated. However, concessions to the union on base rates were mostly applicable to over-the-air network TV commercials and to a lesser extent cable, and the unions won nothing at all for residuals on the increasingly important advertising markets of cable and internet video. So yes, they got a little bit more uh, re recognition on base rates for cable advertising, and they did pretty well on their uh, demands related to network advertising, uh, but they did not get residuals for cable, and they did not get residuals for internet video. Again, remember, this is the year 2000. 
Uh, now, to this day, uh, these are often non-union jobs and there are no residuals, even if the ad is shown thousands or millions of times in the case of the internet. Uh, network TV commercials and their residuals remain a massive source of income for union actors even now in terms of the collective dollar amount for the entire sector. Obviously, I'm not talking here about individually how much each actor is making uh, off of residuals, but um, that is worth noting. However, they're losing out on a lot of potential residual income on cable and internet because of the way that this ended up playing out. Uh, so, Rachel, what should we be sort of thinking about as we look at a number of these strikes and, of course, the current 2023 strike here? What are some of the points that we should be debating or contemplating? Well, I think the big thing is uh, kind of the wages versus class position. A lot of people see um, the the famous people in Hollywood, the actors, um, to a lesser extent, directors and writers, they see them as well compensated, making a lot of money. So therefore, we shouldn't be concerned about their working conditions or because they can just like go home and cry into their piles of money or whatever. But I think from a class perspective, they're still in a position where they're selling their creative labor for wages. So I think uh, something to keep in mind is, yes, there might be a few writers that are making a living from from writing for for TV and, and films, but there's a much bigger pool of writers that are barely making ends meet. Um, they, they aren't making a ton of money and they deserve to be well compensated for their labor as well. Um, so, and I think something else to keep in mind is that they're fighting against the producers. And so if you look at the, the CEOs of these major companies, Netflix, the networks, um, they're making, uh, they're making a lot a lot more money than even the highest paid like actors and and directors and stuff. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Keep your eye on where the money is and who's truly making tons of money and um, who's who's actually doing the labor. So I think uh, be on the watch for uh, cynical messaging about greedy writers who are already making a lot of money and just want to make more. So I think that's something really important um, to keep in mind. Also, of course, a lot of these actors and writers in the industry do not work year round. Sometimes they don't work for years at a time uh, and they have to find other sources of income. And that's tough, right? A relatively small percentage of these people are hugely successful with the compensation associated with that. Generally, they're really not making a lot of money. Yeah, I think the residual thing is very important. Um, like during the last writer strike... Um... Uh, Mark Cherry, who who wrote uh, and created Desperate Housewives, um, which I guess goes to show how long it's been since the 2007-2008 strike. Um, uh, he talked about how after he wrote for Golden Girls, um, he ha didn't work for like years and years after Golden Girls. And the only thing that kept him going was those residual checks coming in. Um, that was the only thing keeping him from declaring bankruptcy. So I think... Uh, that's really important um, because also he said Desperate Housewives wouldn't have even existed if he had had to declare bankruptcy, had to leave the industry, had to go find another job. Um, how many people would drop out of the industry um, before they made their big break, if not for those residuals from from their first writing job or their first uh, writer producer job? 
being able to climb the ranks and reach that head writer position, that showrunner position, it takes time. And if you you have years that um, things are, are fallow, uh, you can't really uh, work up to those big hits, those big creative uh, blockbusters. So it's important to uh, help people live through the lean years so they can create brilliant things. Another point I wanted to point out was uh, people are talking about how the unions have too much power or or they're it's too unionized, which I'm like, I don't even think that's necessarily a thing. But that union saturation in show business is why labor is so strong in New York and L.A. and why they get uh, they win their strikes and get those concessions. Um, almost every craft is unionized and uh, the workers in the industry pretty much industry-wide, are well-educated on the good that unions do, and they show solidarity with each other. So when there's that cross-union um, solidarity, like uh, I I saw there was a picket line um, in New York uh, for the production studio of this show, Evil, a Paramount Plus show, and it was a three-person picket line, but as long as they were picketing, IATSE members wouldn't cross that line. So they shut production down completely. So that that cross solidarity, IATSE members won't cross a picket line. And in return, hopefully WGA members wouldn't cross an IATSE picket line. So it's that solidarity that really helps unions succeed. And I think that's some, definitely a model that can be transferred to other industries as well. Conversely, we saw that historically, when that didn't happen, that it was very bad for the people in the unions. When there yep. wasn't that cross union solidarity, it fell apart very quickly. The last thing I want to talk about is the issue of what these, what the resistance is about from the production side on all of these. It varies a little bit, but a lot of it seems to come down to more issues of control and power than actual financial costs. In many of these strikes, it has been assessed by outside observers, you know, including financial industry people, that these are not significant demands being made in terms of dollar amounts. Uh, Often it's a drop in the bucket compared to the overall amount of money uh, being generated by these uh, corporations. Um, And that's certainly something that's come up in this 2023 strike is, uh, as Rachel said, talking about the executive compensation levels of some of the highest uh, paid uh, senior executives at these companies compared to people really far down the rungs, uh, you know, in the writer's rooms and that sort of thing, and that the amount of money being asked for is relatively small in comparison. But in many of these strikes, it has been very clear that what was actually at stake from the management side was control and power, right? That it wasn't even about that they couldn't afford to pay out on these. They'll always say, oh, well, you know, the gravy train years are over and it's not as fat as it used to be on these profits. That's not really true. Even if you look like make allowances for the fact that the way the industry is set up is kind of bonkers and that they have, you know, they're always promising huge profit payouts to all kinds of different investors more than is probably realistic in many cases. But setting that aside, because that's really not an accurate reflection of the situation either, a lot of this just comes down to, well, if we give them a concession on this, 
then they'll be more powerful. If we give them a concession on this, they'll have more of a say in how operations are done and how the company is run and stuff like that. And we don't want that. Or if we give a concession to one union on this point, all the other unions will want this as well. And a lot of it is really just how dare you tell us how to run our company, which is another thing that we've thematically heard throughout many of our episodes on labor actions in the past. Yeah, I think they ran the numbers. And I think what the WJ is asking for for uh, monetarily is like $400 million, which is like a drop. It sounds like a lot, but it's a drop in the bucket for Netflix um, when they're paying Reed Hastings. I think he gets like $40 billion a year or something. So it's like it's ridiculous to to sit, kind of compare those two numbers and say, oh, no, the the poor Netflix is hurting or it. You, you're trying to squeeze too much money out of the producers. It's it's just not true. And I so I think those control and power points are very important. So I think the streaming uh, demands that the WGA is asking for, and especially the AI uh, machine learning point is really key. So if they can get a concession from the producers on not training AI on on scripts or plays or what have you, and being able to regulate when an AI can be used. That's the, that's the big, big issue. And so that's something to really look out for, for the results from the strike, like how, how that's going to shake out, I think is very, very important. So it's similar to the 2007, 2008 strike when they were starting to fight about streaming. Um, there was a, a point about DVD residuals, but obviously that became irrelevant very quickly. So I think I think AI is only going to become a bigger issue. And so that's the that's the key demand um, to, to watch out for. All right. Well, Rachel, thanks for being on this week to talk about some of the significant past strikes in Hollywood, as well as the current 2023 writer's strike. Glad to be here as always.